You're listening to On The Verge, a podcast about solving the security risks of the 21st century, produced by the Council on Strategic Risks. Tune in for expert interviews about some of today's most pressing existential problems, including climate change, global pandemics, bioweapons, and nuclear proliferation. We'll discuss some of the major challenges and outline potential solutions for preventing worst-case scenarios. At the Council on Strategic Risks, we believe that we are on the verge of a better tomorrow. Hello, everyone. My name is Evan Bernard, and I am with the Center for Climate and Security at the Council on Strategic Risks. In this episode, you will hear a conversation between Sherry Goodman and myself about modern priorities for climate security, including how they relate to climate diplomacy and especially national security risks. This is the first in a series of discussions we will be having on this topic of climate change and national security. We jump right into a discussion of how climate security has evolved from a niche interest at its inception to a major and more critical concern today. The interview was recorded before the Biden administration's Leaders' Summit on Climate Change, which included a session devoted to climate security. If you are interested in reading more about this topic, I encourage you to read the International Military Council on Climate and Security's upcoming 2021 World Climate and Security Report. Let's go to the interview. Today, I have the honor of interviewing the Honorable Sherry Goodman. Sherry Goodman is a senior strategist and advisory board member at the Center for Climate and Security, chair of the board at the Council on Strategic Risks, secretary general of the International Military Council on Climate and Security, and senior fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center's Polar Institute and Environmental Change and Security Program. Sherry served as the president and CEO of the Consortium for Ocean Leadership. Earlier, she served as senior vice president and general counsel of the Center for Naval Analyses, where she was also the founder and executive director of the CNA Military Advisory Board. Sherry served as the first deputy undersecretary of defense for environmental security from 1993 to 2001. She has even been described as the godmother of climate and security. Sherry Goodman, welcome back to On The Verge. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Evan. Today, I would like to focus on a major upcoming event in the global climate and security situation. President Biden has invited 40 global leaders to converge on Earth Day and discuss environmental solutions and climate change action. The International Military Council on Climate and Security, or IMCCS, will also be releasing its 2021 World Climate and Security Report soon, detailing the current state and forecast of climate security regionally and globally. As the first Undersecretary of Defense for Environmental Security, you have a unique perspective of environmental and climate security. How has this landscape changed or shifted since then? And if you were in that role now, what do you think the biggest challenges would be? Well, 
Evan, that's a great question. I think the challenge today is to meet the high level of the climate ambition of this, of the of the Biden administration. And I think it's possible for the Department of Defense, which has gone from being considered an environmental laggard to being an environmental and clean energy leader, now to continue leading by example in the climate space. And it has to do that all across the board, from readiness to operations, from procurement to training, to research and development. And, you know, our military needs to do that because as the climate changes, our forces, our troops, our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and marines are increasingly deployed in more hostile climate conditions. So they have to be prepared for those climate conditions. And indeed, we have to harden our military bases today against those changing climate conditions. And that's what's going to enable us to lead by example and also to improve military systems in a way that allows them to both perform better at lower cost and lower emissions at the same time. And the military's already been doing that with uh, large installations of solar arrays and renewables for forces at the front. And of course, as long use nuclear and understand supply chains and supply and long logistics tails all of which are very relevant today as we transition to a decarbonized economy and move towards a net zero future. It seems that at the high levels, the military does consider climate change perhaps more now than it used to be, but it does consider climate change to be one of those important factors. So leading by example seems to be a good way forward, as you say. In the past few years, or perhaps past few decades, there has been significant momentum for climate diplomacy globally. Uh, World leaders from around the globe will meet at President Biden's Climate Leaders Summit, and climate security is on the agenda. Uh, The Climate Leaders Summit is just one of several major climate summits taking place this year, culminating in the COP26 conference in November. The World Climate and Security Report identifies multiple opportunities for collective action to tackle climate security. What one or two recommendations would you like to see discussed in these international summits? Well, in the ambition to achieve net zero emissions across the economy by 2050 and earlier in the electricity sector, the security sector has an important role to play. An important role to play in two particular ways. One is, well, three ways, really. First, in leading by example, uh, as we've discussed in getting its own house in order on emissions as it fits the military mission. The second is in security cooperation. And this is where I think working together with allies and partners, as you mentioned, climate diplomacy is so important. We can't do this alone. No country can accomplish this alone. And there's an important role to be had for security forces working together and also to accomplish this, both to reduce the risks of climate threats around the world, happening everywhere from the Arctic to Africa, but also in ensuring that, for example, in security organizations like NATO, our forces become what we call interoperable, even as they introduce climate-relevant systems into them and accounting systems. And that, I think, is 
going to be an increasing challenge as we move towards a greener defense in future years. And the third way, and most important, is in innovation. Militaries have long, the U.S. military has long been a leader in, in innovation, in technology, has brought us some of the you know greatest innovations of era, whether it's internet or GPS. And now we're seeing the same potentially with batteries, electric vehicle charging stations, with unmanned systems that are going to help give us what I would call climate domain awareness. Uh, and that's what we're going to need going forward. So you almost speak of a climate security force multilateralism. Do you kind of have a proposal of how international forces should approach working together in the near term and maybe medium term on those most prescient issues? You know, we need to build climate domain awareness across our forces, particularly in organizations like NATO that can develop robust pathways to both, you know, learn from the climate analysis that each of the countries are already doing, setting up perhaps a climate center of excellence, as well as the energy center of excellence that already exists within NATO. A second, to prioritize climate resilient infrastructure. You know, as I said, we need to ensure that military bases and ports and other facilities can withstand increased heat, sea level rise, wildfire risk, the variety of threats now, drought and flooding that we face in, in climate. And then, you know, leading by example, finally, towards reducing carbon emissions. And that's, again, where consistent with the military mission of being able to deploy effective fighting forces, we also need to reduce emissions. And we need to offer our, you know, our, our services around the world so we find that militaries often when they provide hospital ships and humanitarian assistance, that helps provide the security we need in the modern era. And increasingly, the demand for those kinds of support, whether it's in South America or across Africa or parts of Asia, those are the services people need most. That's very interesting. So interoperability, infrastructure, sustainability and resilience, and leading by example, that's a great way to lead into my next question for you, actually, which is how climate change is a threat multiplier. You first described climate change as a threat multiplier, and I think that is a great way to describe the spectrum of how climate change affects everything from social stability and resource scarcity to military readiness and national security. Can you please describe how the term threat multiplier applies to present day regional climate security challenges? And perhaps can you provide a few examples? Sure. Thank you, Evan. So I coined the phrase threat multiplier in 2007 when we released the first CNA military advisory board report on climate change and the threat of national security. Uh, and at that time, we framed climate change as a threat multiplier because we understood that it aggravated uh, existing threats around the world from terrorism to what we now call great power competition. And we can see that uh, most vividly, let's say today in, in the Arctic, where we hold a whole new ocean that's opened up and Russia is militarizing it's part of the Arctic and China has ambitions for transit and traffic and economic activity across the region because it's opened up due to climate change. So that has certainly changed and it's changing the way we deploy our forces in the region today, even as we speak. And in parts of Africa 
and in, in, in Asia, you see violent extremist organizations that are forming because of persistent drought conditions and on the unpredictability of climate, which makes it much more difficult in certain regions, particularly across the Sahel, for farmers, herders, and others who have a subsistence lifestyle uh, to be able to maintain their livelihoods as the agricultural season is no longer predictable, or there's competition between farmers and herders, as we've seen both in Syria, across the Middle East, we've seen in parts of the Sahel, and then populations are forced to migrate. There's, you know, we have the greatest wave of, of uh, global migration now since World War II and extensive internal displacement across much of the Sahel as farmers and herders and their families move towards urban areas that are already becoming overpopulated with demographic uh, growth and cities and urban areas can't support them. And people, uh, un the unemployed, often young males then join up with uh, violent extremist organizations that then terrorize uh, local populations. And, you know, there, and, and it's loss of economic opportunities that's fomented in part by the increasing unpredictable climate conditions and the inability to adapt rapidly enough to those changing conditions. With enough time, with enough resources, with enough planning, crops can be changed and some people can move and, and there are opportunities in other regions. But this all takes time and planning and enough resources, which isn't always to be had in certain regions that are already politically unstable and where natural resource conditions were already limited before the climate emergency that's upon us today. You mentioned a lot of instability from the implications and repercussions of the changes in climate. And how uh, military forces and other security forces will need to adapt to these changes in climate and the repercussions of those. What would you say to a world leader whose military forces are being deployed into a region of the world where climate change is dramatically affecting the resources in that region and dramatically affecting the conditions which the forces will be fighting? What is your message to them? Well, the, mess the message is without security, you don't have stability, but without development and without adequate resources, you won't have stability either. So you need a whole, you know, we need a, a, an integrated societal approach. Sometimes people have called it, you know, the three Ds, development, diplomacy, and defense. Increasingly in the climate era, defense is supporting climate diplomatic led and development efforts. And, and essentially the solutions have to be locally based. Uh, they can't be imposed from the outside and they have to be grown at home. And I see, you know, leaders around the world trying to do this and local communities are trying to do this against many odds in, in many cases, both economic, political, educational, societal, and then aggravated, as I said, threat multiplied by climate change. So I, I think that the era we're in now, I, I see more optimism, more hope for a constructive change, more willingness and interest among development, diplomatic, and defense leaders to work together in an integrated way, which I think is very positive. And my hope is that that will continue and usher in a new era of being able to climate-proof our future. Thank you. Do you have any final thoughts that you would like to add? 
I'm good. Well, Sherry, I have greatly enjoyed this insightful discussion. I look forward to future discussions. Thank you for joining the show. Yeah, thank you, Evan. Thank you for listening to On The Verge. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to leave us a review. For more information on the work of the Council on Strategic Risks, please visit us at councilonstrategicrisks.org or you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn.